If you find yourself being an agreeable person, and maybe you secretly are a theist, even if you deny the fact that you think you're a theist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody, everybody who's agreeable has a god-shaped hole in their heart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I am Troy Polidori. Oh! Oh, did I throw you off? You did, did throw, I throw me you off. off. Did I throw you off? Oh, oh, oh. See, look, man, I'm going through a rebranding, all right? I'm going through a rebranding. My, my real name is Austin Hayden. Have you seen a doctor about I that, publish, dude? I publish, I know, right? It's an inflamed rebranding. I publish under the name of Austin Hayden Smith, but all my acting work is under Austin Hayden, so I'm perpetually confused as to how to identify myself. Troy, what do I do? Or what do you do about this problem? Yeah. I mean, isn't the proper Delizian response to just switch back and forth randomly because there is no static <laughs> ontology or something like that? Yeah, okay, perfect. So that's what we'll do then. <laughs> I am Austin Hayden. That sounds like the worst advice for a brand, though. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I cut you off, by the way, when you were saying when you were saying your intro. So just so people can actually hear what your name is. What is your name, my friend? I mean, I think it's Troy Polidori, but now I'm having a branding existential crisis. I'm telling you, dude, once you go down this rabbit hole, you're fucked. Who am I, really? All right, so (laughs) we've had a little bit of a break, uh, as you might know if you are a subscriber. Uh, We'll we'll call it our summer break, even though it wasn't really summer for Troy. It was the end of summer for me, though, um, down here in the Southern Hemisphere. But we're back, and we are going to be jumping into regularly scheduled programming and content shit. And the way that we're going to jump back in it in the main segment is, Troy, tell people what we're going to talk about in the main segment this week. So there was recently an article in um, Philosophical Psychology, I believe is the name of the journal, studying the psychology of philosophers, basically. And they um, they did a, a sort of um, a psychological study using all the uh, methods of, of, that a soft science would do and that philosophers that abhor all things empirical um, would abstain from uh, of necessity. Um, I'm speaking mostly of myself there. Although I don't imagine you're the most empirically uh, grounded philosopher either, right? We both have nah. we share a disdain for, nah. that, for the lesser science. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they did a, a sort of study on the way that psychological traits affect um, the views of professional philosophers. So basically trying to find negative and positive correlations between psychological traits and as well as experiences and other things, not just psychological traits and the um, views that philosophers, professional philosophers uh, adhere to. And it's pretty interesting. Um, We also just finished, I just finished up a semester and so have been super busy. to explain why we haven't been uh, recording in the last couple of weeks. And so needed something we could bullshit about old school Owls at Dawn style, like back in the 2017 days where we would just bullshit on and on and on. Believe it or not, we actually bullshit less than we used to, I think, if you were to do a sort of um, overview of the history of this podcast. So we wanted to go back to that for a little break here and uh, talk about whether or not our psychological traits and our various experiences affect our philosophical positions. Yeah, and this isn't something just like an academic philosophy, right? It's kind of like, why do you gravitate to certain 
rational formulations? Or why do you adhere to certain quote-unquote worldviews, right? Is there something about your psychological disposition that tends in particular directions? So I think this is actually really fucking interesting. When you first suggested it to me, I was like, okay, that could be interesting. And then I read the study and I was like, oh shit, this is really fucking fascinating. So... Yeah, I'm keen to delve into this. So we'll talk about that in the main segment, but just a little bit of housekeeping. Troy, what do we have to tell people about? What's going on? Well, we do want to mention, as we always do, that if you want to support us in a tangible way, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and support us through multiple tiers and get access to all sorts of goodies that we uh, give to the patrons, including the ability to choose our next patron-sponsored episode. Um, we put up every yeah. month or two a thread where patrons can suggest topics for us to cover. We take three, four, or five of them that we think we could um, handle, and we put up another thread for patrons to vote on. We currently have a thread up for the last several weeks for patrons to um, sort of nominate different topics, and we just now have made available the thread to choose the topic. So if you're a patron, go over to patreon.com slash dawn and vote on your preferred topic. And if you're not a patron and you want to get access to choosing that next patron-sponsored episode, you can go there as well for that. Yeah, and there's bonus content, bonus episodes. There's also access to the Discord chat, which has been kind of like a lovely, uh, little lively community over there. So if you want all that goodness, head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Is there anything else before we get into the shitty minute here, dude? I don't I think, think we so, can jump huh? into it. Yeah, let's take a shit. Okay, cool, let's do it. Okay, so now we got to start off the episode the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's with the shitty minute. This is the segment of the episode where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. So, Troy, it's been a while, so I haven't really heard you have a rant. So what's going on, man? What's got you in a tizzy? Yeah, dude, so I don't know if this is a shitty minute or a sticky leaves because I both love it and hate it equally. (laughs) But it's so ridiculous that it it belongs more in the shitty minute from a world historical perspective. Even I myself am not really angry about it. Perhaps I'm even sort of... I mean, I don't want to say happy about it. It doesn't make me happy, but I'm almost I'm, I'm excited to tell you about it because I've been waiting to talk to you about this Fuck. for a while. Okay. I would have WhatsApped this to you several weeks ago if I hadn't immediately planned to make it part of the podcast. So I've been waiting for a while for this one. Wow. Do you know the story of Vivian Flores, the Laker podcaster? No, I do not. I, I figured you don't really frequent nba twitter too much especially not like Mm-mm. you know in the depths of like laker twitter fandom twitter Mm-mm. and i don't I do either not. but i follow some of the you know um bigger figures and so maybe a month ago at this point this is a good timing right because the nba playoffs are going to have started pretty much as soon as this a podcast goes live i think um lakers twitter was a buzz Uh, about a month or so ago, because a podcaster, not a major podcaster, but kind of a mid-tier Lakers podcaster named Vivian Flores apparently went missing. She's supposedly an LA native, um, looks like a supermodel, um, has a Twitter following of tens of thousands of people, and records on this uh, podcast called Lakers Fanatics with a guy named Josh Toussaint. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he's like, again, he's also like kind of a mid-tier Lakers blogger or podcaster. I hadn't heard of this podcast, but I think I had seen this Josh guy through various retweets at points. His profile picture at least seemed familiar. So this girl that he podcasts with, Vivian Flores, she goes missing apparently. And her podcast co-host, Josh, he sends out a tweet telling everybody, these are her details, like her age, and here's a picture of her. She's missing please help find her, right? 
It goes totally viral. Everybody in Lakers Twitter, in fact, NBA Twitter starts talking about it. Kevin Durant was talking about it. O'Shea Jackson Jr., right, Ice Cube's son, who's a huge Laker fan. Um, he's plugged into Lakers Twitter as much as any major celebrity is. And he was talking about it, trying to help, like, retweeting stuff about her and trying to help get people to go out and look for her and stuff like this. It was, it was during a game night, actually, as well. So everyone was going back and forth to the Laker game and this whole story. And I'm just like, I think seeing this maybe the next day or something because I was busy. And it's just like, who the fuck is this Vivian person? What the hell's going on? This is crazy. <laughs> Turns out that people start wondering about this story. Like, why is this podcast co-host of hers, the one who's leading this, like publicly leading this search to find her, why isn't like her family or siblings or somebody else mm. speaking out about this who might have an idea where she is um, rather than this person who's, you know, had a, been on a, on a podcast with her for just a little bit. So some Twitter sleuthing starts happening, right? And people start finding out that a lot of her photos of herself are that are on Twitter are clearly photoshopped, badly photoshopped with different, like weird, different hair that's been photoshopped. They all, people do reverse image searches and find out that they're very similar to a supermodel um, whose name I don't, I don't recall. Uh, and this account of hers had been going on for 10 years with these different photoshopped photos and shit like this. 10 years building up the stuff. Someone comes out and says that something like eight or nine years ago, they were catfished by a person on this account, the same Twitter account of the supposed Vivian Flores, right? So people start wondering, like, what the hell's going on here? Several hours after this first starts, the podcast co-host guy, Josh, he claims that he's been duped this whole time and that she's not a real person, or at least is not who she says she is. He what? says they've never recorded simultaneously. They send recordings back and forth, and he edits them together to make it seem like they're talking at the same time. He's never seen her face in a video call, only pictures that she sent. Right, and that he's sorry. This has all been um, a manipulation on whoever this person's part is, and, and he doesn't want to be even more. He's embarrassed, but please, just everybody let it go. Um, whoever this person is, they're fine. They're not actually Vivian. They're not actually missing. Whatever. Right. People. So people are like, "What the hell is going on here? This is so fishy." Right. Her account starts tweeting out that he's lying about this, that she's a real person, and he's just um, trying to like ruin her or whatever. So people are obviously asking her, okay, well, then you prove it. Like, send us, like, put, post a video of yourself or something that proves you're a real person, right? People even, like, went into the audio of their podcast and found out that it evidenced that her voice had been manipulated up higher pitches. Like, it had been raised in terms of pitch to sound more like a woman. So people are speculating that it's actually some, like, middle-aged dude or something. So this is the best part. This is the best part of this story. You thought it was good so far? This is the best part. What the she fuck? She acquiesces. And posts a video of herself in the classic, I don't know what the term is for, but when you are doing like a Reddit AMA or something, you put a picture of yourself with um, your name on it, right? So that, and like yeah. the date or something, so that people know that it's like a current photo. It's not somebody using an old photo or something, you know? It's like the, the new new version of like putting a picture of yourself with a, today's newspaper so that you know it's today, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. She puts a video of herself holding up a piece of paper with her name on it. And then kind of like scornfully, dismissively showing it and then turning the camera off, right? But her name is spelled wrong. <laughs> what? Her name is Vivian with an A at the end, right? A-N. That's how it's spelled in her Twitter account and everywhere else in the podcast, whatever else. 
But in this video right. she posts, it's E-N. <laughs> the name is spelled what? wrong in this video. What? <laughs> it's amazing, dude. So every response to this Twitter post is like, what the fuck? Why is your name spelled wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I can tell, her account's gone now. I tried to. I haven't looked up anything about this in a few weeks because I've been really busy. So today when I'm preparing for this, I tried to pull it up again to remind myself and, and the Twitter account's gone. So you can't find it anymore. So I don't know if there's a resolution to it, if they found it with some like 50-year-old Indian guy or whatever that people speculate. <laughs> but it does seem like this Lakers podcast host had been catfishing people for 10 years. <laughs> as Holy this person. shit. <laughs> Holy shit. Who's the person? Who's who's the face that she was using or that they were using? It's it's some supermodel. I forget whose name, but some like, you know, C-tier supermodel or whatever. And how and did they – so she was photoshopping I, I need her to know more into like all sorts of stuff, like Lakers stuff into um, – she, she, I think she photoshopped her that, – that supermodel in the Staples Center. Like all yeah. sorts of stuff. Yeah. What the fuck? And that's that an that model story. never knew that her identity was being used? And has that, has that model come out and been like, uh, hey, that's actually me? No, I mean, not that I know of. They may have at this point since it was such, it was such big news that, like I said, Kevin Durant was talking about it. All, all of the NBA um, blogosphere and Twitter sphere and podcast sphere, whatever, was talking about it for a few days because it was such a crazy story. And it's still a meme and now, do we know? Right? And do we know that this co-host wasn't in on it the whole time, that it's not actually this co-host's alter identity? I mean, that would be amazing, right? If he was literally making up a person and then pitching his voice higher so they could laugh at his jokes and shit like that. That would be amazing. I really hope it's that, even though it means that that person needs a lot of help. Okay, so I need to get to the shitty part. What's the shitty part here? Because this is a fucking sticky of a sticky leaves here, man. I know, right? I thought about, is this a sticky leaves or a shitty minute? I'm not really mad about it, but it's it's just a shitty, <laughs> it's a shitty in a non-evaluative sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah, yeah. I don't actually think there's anything to be angry about here it's more just amazed yeah. at the insanity of human beings that's really yeah what it is and so i don't want to make it a sticky lease because this doesn't provide any meaning to my life really that is but true it's, but fuck all it's entertaining man it's hilarious it's just everything great about what the internet has done to fry our brains yes yeah it is absolute brain fry to the hilt <laughs> my god that's interesting now now I mean, there's nothing wrong if you use a persona, right? Like people do it all the time. Oh yeah, people are kayfabe. Sure. People are acting. But if you deceive people, could you get legally? Could you be legally held responsible, especially if you were making money for fraud, identity theft, something along those lines? Yeah, I don't know. I would bet if you were using the image itself of somebody else, portraying yeah. it and claiming that it's you, and then making money off that. But I, I would bet that they're probably a free podcast anyway. And even if they weren't. The, the podcast would be the thing that would be um, the content making the money and not the pictures themselves. But I guess you probably could I just, get sued in civil court. So let's say it's not for monetary gain. Let's say it was just simply for notoriety. or for, like I just want to know in what way is this person getting their rocks off in by, by impersonating this person, right? Like, like do they just love when someone is like, oh my god, you're so fucking sexy. Sexy and you can know about sports? Marry me. Like like what is it that turns the person on that is like enjoying living in this other person's skin? I just want to know what their like libidinal motivation is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I, I really hope that it's like 
an Adam Sandler movie. And it's like, here's a prank I'm going to pull one night when I've had too many beers. I'm going to pretend to be this hot chick. And then you get so much mm. attention that you just start doing it over and over again. And then all of a sudden you realize <laughs> you've created this monster and you can't do anything about it. You just have to keep yeah. going back. Yeah. Would, but then be, it's yeah, 10 years later. And then you probably just, it, it becomes habit, but then you really start to maybe believe that you are this person, you know? And it just is like, it's more like a, a performance art piece than anything at that point. You just kind of embody the lie. Yeah. It's an important thing. It matters to people. You got to be there for them. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, man, the internet is crazy, right? Yeah, dude. And it's it's like this stuff where the podcast host had never seen her face, right? And then I, I've read, yeah. some, I read an article about this that said that um, some of it was brought to light also by an ex-boyfriend who had never seen her face. And I'm like, what, what the fuck is that about? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to police relationship status at all. I have, I have no desire to do that whatsoever. But is it is it wrong to feel like that's just a weird sentence to utter? Like, yeah, can you really be someone's sentence. relationship partner if you've never seen them? I mean, it's different if if you couldn't possibly see them, right? For whatever reason, you're in a different country. You're planning to see each other. You only like written letters. You're fucking in the Victorian England, right? And you've only written letters to this person you're betrothed to. That's different, right? But if it's like purely by choice you haven't seen someone else's face i don't know maybe maybe, yeah. I, maybe i need to be like pushed back and and and, and not be such a so fashy about this about like controlling these borders but what do you think about that no i am okay with that level of patrolling of those borders <laughs> um that doesn't mean that you can't have some kind of relationship with somebody certainly yeah, for sure but um but I don't know that we use the word boyfriend or girlfriend in that situation, right? Um, yeah, it's like courting or something or whatever the non-creepy, you know, non-Christian creepy version of that would be. And the reason I say that isn't because I'm somehow policing this because I'm like, oh, but that doesn't count. It's more like actually, no, what this person was doing was manipulating a person. And that person might have thought like, oh, I'm – this is leading to something or I have some sort of emotional attachment to this person. And I, I mean I wouldn't be – I'm speculating here, but I wouldn't be surprised if the other person – the, the boyfriend, let's say, was ever like, hey, can we Skype or can I see your face or when can we, I can't wait to see you in person. And that means that the other, the, the what is it, Ava, Ava Flores, Vivian, Vivian Flores Vivian, yeah. was constantly, was constantly keeping the other person at an arm's length in order to create the power relationship, to create and to maintain the power dynamic. So mm -hmm. that's why it's not a relationship. That's why it's not a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that the person behind the mask of Vivian didn't have some sort of need that they were also, you know, kind of getting fulfilled. But if it's if it's if it's in the if it's if it's being expressed as manipulation in the way that I just described, I just don't think you can call that a relationship. I'm sorry. Or at least it's not a, it's not a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. It's some other kind of relationship. yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah, minimal or deflationary yeah, yeah. relationship, yeah. Yeah, now in one sense you could say, well, maybe they were both getting something out of it. The one guy was getting hope and, you know, maybe he was getting like sexy pictures of this model or whatever he was getting or, or encouraging words, some kind of acceptance that maybe he wasn't getting in, in other romantic situations. But then that's just purely transactional. And I don't want to view a boyfriend, girlfriend or a romantic relationship in such transactional terms. So I don't know, man. I just think that's – nah. Nah. Nah, it can't be. It can't be. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Yeah, I'm curious what people think out there, though. So if you, if you think that the, this opinion is a little too fashy, let us know. I'd be curious what the counter arguments are, because I don't really have much to stake here. I certainly am not going to occupy this position against you know all oncoming arguments. So, but I would be curious to see what the what the uh, what the Zoomers think about this, because they might have a different perspective. Well, yeah, no, no, you can a hundred percent. You can have a boyfriend girlfriend relationship in a, a mutually reciprocal way if you have not seen the person's face. If there is no pretense, right? If there is honesty, if you meet on Twitter and both of you use an avatar, for example, and then you start DMing each other and you really just vibe, you know, and maybe you even send voice messages, maybe not, let's say, but let's say maybe you do, but maybe you don't. And you both are like, one person lives in Paris and the other person uh, lives in, we'll say Melbourne, right? And you can have some kind of romantic connection with that person. But oh, for sure. If absolutely, I mean, I would hope that it would progress to the point where you can have other, other human needs and desires met, which would include, you know, maybe physical contact at some point, seeing the other person's face because body language is extremely important. I would hope that it would lead to that. But even if it doesn't, and then say it ends for, for whatever reason, right? So you have three months where you're doing this DMing and flirting and and maybe you're like fuck you know like you're not seeing anybody else and the other person is not seeing anybody because you're just getting your needs met there but that's totally different because then there is a reciprocity right that is that is happening there's a connection that's happening in authenticity but in this circumstance in this circumstance if it's based on dishonesty and manipulation then i'm sorry i just i don't it it just feels like transactional and it's and 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 extractivist and exploitative right yeah, and the key would be, you know, I could see a situation where you're dating somebody for maybe even a long time and they have a whole secret life. And so you think that there's reciprocity where actually there's not. And so you're deceived yeah. in that way. It would be appropriate to say, oh, yeah, I was dating that person or that was my girlfriend or my yeah. boyfriend or yeah, whatever, yeah. right? But there's a certain level of obviousness to the lack of reciprocity <laughs> that at a certain point when it reaches that level of at the surface, right? That you're like in the same city, in the same town, and you they make up excuses every single time that they're supposed to show you their face or video chat or whatever, even though it would be super easy. Um, that at a certain point, like that's probably, probably, maybe not guaranteed, but probably evident that this is not actually a uh, reciprocal relationship that you would denominate with, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, but then again, fuck, I don't know. See, now I'm going to I'm gonna backtrack and I'm going to say, but you do hear these stories about people who have been catfished and they're like, fuck, we even had like phone calls, but we just could never have a video call or whatever. And they they were quote unquote dating for months and months and months at a time, right? And yeah, that's the that, thing though. It's like it, if the deception yeah. is is reasonable, like it was reasonable for you to to be deceived in that instance, right? Yeah. Um, then that's that's totally understandable. Like, but there's a certain point where it was not reasonable for you to have uh, been deceived um, by this, and so it was probably more of you, in, in some sense, like first order believed you were being catfished or something was wrong here, right? But then you just w- couldn't possibly admit it, so you covered it over with this like second order belief that oh, you know, things are just weird or whatever, and that's where it's like you know there's some like self deception going on here, and so really this is not this is not actually a reciprocal relationship. Fuck. This is know. interesting. I'm not tied to that, but yeah. there's some there's there's probably some sort of boundary there. Yeah. All right. Well, that's 
that thank you for bringing this up because now my mind is fucked and uh, <laughs> now I'm gonna have to go down a fucking Twitter reddit rabbit hole and find out what is going on with vivian flores i'll, I'll send you an article i mean we can post this okay. too when we post the episode that shows you some of these photoshop pictures and some of the tweets and stuff okay. it, it really takes you down the rabbit hole to where you every step of the of the story you're just like i can't believe this is actually happening i mean i just typed in vivian flores lakers and now i'm looking at photos and i see yeah, I mean, is that a photoshopped photo of her, like, up high at the Laker game where, I mean, she is standing out quite a bit from the back. Yeah, uh, let's see. Yeah, that does, yeah, that's definitely photoshopped. <laughs> and then here's, oh, yeah, that's a bad photoshop, too. That's, like, not even her head on that body. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, the, th- the things you'll believe when you're not primed that something's wrong, you know? All right, well, fuck, let's wrap up the shitty minute there, man, and let's get into this main segment. Yeah, dude? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so in the main segment this week, as we teased in the intro, we're going to be talking about a recent study that examines the correlation between one's psychological predisposition and one's philosophical knowledge system, might we say, and then Mm. maybe the co-constitutive relationship between the two that would be what i would be curious to explore um how they maybe mutually reinforce one another and there's a chicken and egg problem here so but i don't know troy why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about what it is that we're going to be looking at tell them about the study some of the findings etc yeah so here's their thesis they say our interest was in how philosophical views relate to psychological traits in professional philosophers We aim to identify associations between psychological traits and philosophical views for further replication and study. So I think the key there is the associations and correlations bit, right? Because they're they're being very careful and conservative. And even though I think you're right, what I want to speculate on is the co-constitutive stuff. (laughs) Um, And we'll appropriately call that bullshit because we're not actually doing the empirical work that would be needed to actually show any of this, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So they're just coming, they're just showing the correlations and we can sort of speculate on whether there's any there, there when it comes to these correlations, Mm. right? Any causal or constitutive relationship between them. What's interesting though is, and I don't know if you want to like jump right into this or not, but um, so they, they found a bunch of negative correlations, which I think are pretty interesting as the sort of the first thing. And the major one was that age, gender, relationship status, income, ethnicity, professional status, like all that demographic information and stuff, yielded no significant findings or correlations with particular philosophical views. And that's probably exactly what you think from various different um, sort of worldviews would state that those would be the things that would in some sense determine um, what your philosophical views are, right? Whether you're old or young, whether you're male or female, whether you're married or single, how rich you are, how poor you are, your ethnicity, whether you're tenure line or adjunct, right? And yet none of that stuff seems to. Yeah, because, okay, so... Because we typically hear that, oh, like, but when people are younger, they're more radical. And then as they get older, they get more conservative, right? Mm -hmm. And that's often tied to relationship status and income. The idea that when you're single and young, you can be free and you're exploring. And so that might also impact your ideas and you might be a little bit more radical. But then you get married and then you get a job and then you have to worry about your income and you have to worry about your family. And so you become a little bit more conservative. Like this is just... It's, it's a cliche that is uttered so often. So it's interesting that they found no particular correlation between those, those issues. Yeah? 
Yeah, and there's you know specifically these are about professional philosophers, right? Of of many different professional stripes, but professional philosophers. So it's very possible that those things are more correlated amongst the general population than philosophers. Mm. But still, um, there it'd be weird if there was no correlation amongst philosophers and then a huge correlation amongst the general population. Philosophers are weird, but they're not that weird. Uh, right. Yeah. So it's it's. I don't want it to feed into this notion that like once you become a philosopher, you become so rational, <laughs> right? That no. no, your demographics no longer influence your thinking whatsoever. Whereas beforehand, they completely determine your thinking. Like becoming a philosopher means mastering, right? Um, your your like psychological uh, inclinations and stuff like that. That certainly um, would be absurd. So yeah, I do mm. think it's, it's appropriate to say that those cliches about demographic information in some sense like determining or having a very strong role in um, your more philosophical views. It's probably a cl- more of a cliche than we'd like to admit. It's probably not that, uh, it's been some factor, right? But it's probably not that big of a factor. Interesting. Yeah. One of the other negative um, results that they found was that neither exercise nor meditation was associated with any philosophical views, which is interesting as well. Right, because a lot mm-hmm. of times there are certain stigmas attached to, uh, like, well, let's say a gym bro or somebody who keeps fit, and that might kind of lead them within a certain, uh, lead them to a certain kind of worldview, and then simultaneously meditation, right? But it's interesting that they found no correlation. Yeah, which is doubly interesting for a reason we'll maybe get to later. That actually experiences and activities generally seems to have a stronger correlation with certain philosophical views as opposed to determinate psychological traits, right? So there's a kind of a, a bifurcation there. Um, so like the, the major uh, five-factor personality traits, openness to experience, conscientiousness, introversion, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism didn't have any associations with spe- a spe- a specific philosophical views, right? So that's kind of the, the big takeaway is that demographics and the major psychological traits don't have much of a correlation at all with philosophical views. Experiences and activities do, except for meditation and exercise, which is interesting about why those mm. would be the kinds of things that are, because they're just so ubiquitous, you think? Mm. I don't know. Like may, maybe 40 years ago, meditation would have been different, but now it's it's ubiquitous, so everybody yeah. accepts it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. All right, yeah. what else were some of the findings? Yeah. Yeah, and then lastly, the other negative correlation is that, and this is, I think, a very problematic um, designation, and we can talk about it, but they termed anti-naturalism. So it's sort of the combination of libertarian um, position on free will, uh, non-physicalism about the mind, belief in God, non-naturalism, which, I mean, does that not encompass all these things, if this is what their view is? <laughs> and then belief in the metaphysical possibility of philosophical zombies, which this is not a little philosophy of mind, so this is obviously a huge yeah. issue, on par with belief in God, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and further fact view about personal identity, which um, this is not my area, but basically it's just the idea that personal identity is is not reducible to psychological continuity or physical continuity. It's some further fact beyond that. So it's presumably some non-natural fact. Um, so all these kind of anti-naturalist or non-naturalist views are unassociated with particular personality traits or well-being. So it's not the case that like 
because you're very uh, well off or because you're very poor off for whatever reason, you take these anti-naturalist views. So there's some connection between those things, which I think is good. Hmm. It's good to point out, but then it also, I think, I mean, we can talk about this, but I think it's pretty important to decluster all of these beliefs um, because I don't think that they're an appropriate cluster, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then let's talk about some of the positive correlations. Yeah, so these are interesting. I mean, a pretty obvious one is that uh, theism, so belief in in God. I don't know if they if they define it as monotheistic God or not, but, mono, but theism is usually defined as, as sort of a monotheistic uh, God. It's associated with agreeableness, which I think the personality trait of agreeableness, right? Which I think is hmm. pretty expected. That's not a thing that you would, um, I guess, especially if you've lived in the South for any amount of time, right? That's a, that's a pretty normal thing. Now, can you reverse engineer these correlations and say, well, if you find yourself being an agreeable person, then maybe you secretly are a theist, even if you deny the fact that you think you're a theist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody who's agreeable has a God-shaped hole in their heart. Where they, they admit yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why those of us who are agreeable uh, but are, are not theists or no longer theists um, in like the philosophical sense are always going to yearn for something to replace it, like the state. That's, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I actually felt a little bit convicted when I read that one because I was like, fuck, I am kind of agreeable. I was like... God damn it. Where is my God? Who is my God? Which God is my God? <laughs> yeah, there's something there about the big other watching you that makes you be agreeable, right? Otherwise, yeah, you would I just be so. a misanthrope. Yeah. But that, that leads into the – so like, yeah, if, the, if there was no God, would you just be a misanthrope, right? This kind of leads into this next one, which I think is really interesting. That hard determinism or belief in hard determinism, which is essentially like – um, deter- that, that determinism and free will are not compatible. So I, I think they're assuming an incompatibilist position here. I'm not positive about that, but I think that's what they're assuming. Um, so hard determinism, no free will, is associated with lower life satisfaction and higher rates of depression and anxiety. Dang. I mean, the existentialist in me says, yeah. Um, <laughs> interesting though, right? So So basically, this is like some sort of if if you are some sort of um, oh I don't know like a what's the word I'm some sort of scientistic determinist right then then that that would lead to lower life satisfaction or it tends to lead towards lower life satisfaction and higher depression anxiety and I wonder how general this is right because and this makes me think then because there are a lot of people that are on the quote unquote left who are very reactive against any sort of uh, religion, theorism, theism, spirituality, etc. And they end up kind of, whether intentionally or not, buying into a lot of like scientific determinisms, right? And then at the same time, a lot of people on the left are also fucking angry and depressed and anxious all the time. But <laughs> what's, what's the causal factor, right? Is it, is it their hard determinism? Is it the fact that they live in a world where they're like, fuck, you know, these power structures and they are somehow expressions of a deterministic logic? Or do you know what I mean? There's this weird matrix of possible conditions that I think we could explore just by thinking about this single positive correlation that they talk about, which actually I think also fits in with some other ones too about, we'll talk about it in a second, but theism versus idealism, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, what I'm really curious about is, and I don't know if they did this in the study, I don't recall after, I read this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't remember if they talked about this, but 
you know, talking to analytic philosophers for the most, but they didn't, they didn't specifically talk to only analytic philosophers, but especially amongst American philosophers, if you're talking about hard determinism, you're probably going to have in mind a, a, a physicalist determinism, right? A sort of scientific determinism. Um, but there are other kinds of determinism too. Like there's obviously theistic determinism. Um, mm. Not many people hold to that, but that's a thing that exists, right? And there is a kind of uh, social determinism, which is I think what you're talking about. There are about you know power structures make you sort of um, control you in such a way that there's sort of no social freedom, right? Regardless yeah. of whether or not there's a um, biological basis for uh, denying free will. And I do wonder if the correlation exists in the same way with all three of those. How yeah, because structural determinism is different, though, than like a hard physicalist determinism, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, because usually structural determinists, like even in like the hardcore Althusserian sense, let's say, they still believe in rupture or some kind of possible break, you know? Um, so a structural determinist still has a hope, right? Whereas <laughs> if you were like a hard physicalist, scientific determinist, I guess it does make sense that there wouldn't be much hope. You kind of just are bound by the laws of nature. And so there is no valorization of like the human spirit or of like voluntaristic political possibilities or social or individual possibilities. So, I mean, it kind of, there's a logic here that makes sense. Yeah. And what I really appreciate about this, and obviously I want this to be true because hmm, hmm. it's like, it, it fits so neatly into the way I think about why determinism is so bad <laughs> uh, or mm. it's hard hard determinism right i'm a compatibilist so i think there's some there's wait a second there. so your philosophical desire to deny hard determinism comes from your psychological need for what troy let's let's apply this study to what you're about to say right now oh no dude I'm, I'm the manifestation of pure reason don't even front <laughs> okay yeah, dude. Okay, this is this yeah. is this. I'm demonstrating this from the first principles available to <laughs> God, God's self. I mean, come on, man. You yes, know this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, but I think the fact that I'm fully aware of the fact that I really want this to be true um, mm. makes me, in some sense, guarded against whatever bad speculations come come out of this. But also, I want to do bad speculations because this is the bullshitting part of this podcast, right? So yeah. Yeah, I want this to be true because it fits into the other things that I think um, about sort of the specific scientific kind of hard determinism that we're referencing here. Um, yeah. But also I think what's important about this is it kind of speaks against and provides some evidence against the thesis or for the thesis specifically that your sort of beliefs about and worldview um, from an abstract philosophical perspective influences the way you think about everyday things in life. And that's... Yeah. For some people, like for me, it's obvious, um, but for a lot of other people, it's not. For a lot of other people, philosophical considerations are just, you know, wanking off in the mirror uh, and don't have any effect on your daily life. But I think there's something we can take from this is that, no, dude, if you actually really believe in hard determinism, it makes your life worse. <laughs> that doesn't mean mm. it's wrong. That's not evidence that it's wrong, right? But it, it is evidence of the fact that um, your your sort of, um, your rational beliefs uh, and speculation or abstract philosophical rational beliefs affect the way that you live your life. Okay, this is my speculative take on it. I want to say insofar as you express hard determinism, 
because I don't think anyone ever just simply is a hard determinist, right? I think it's a practice that is lived, and yeah, it becomes habituated, but I'm going to say insofar as one expresses hard determinism, that has a correlation towards uh, lower life satisfaction, depression, anxiety, lack of control, um, lack of a sense of freedom and hope, etc., etc., only again insofar as that... Um, that expression of hard determinism is manifested within a particular context. It could be a moment, it could be a life period, um, it could be in certain ways of viewing certain particular things, but that's what I'd want to say because I think that people are pluridimensional. People are, you know, uh, as Whitman says, multiplicities, right? And so if we are a multifaceted diamond with a thousand sides, I don't think that every side is reflecting hard determinism <clears throat> either all the time or to the same degree all the time, right? So that's what I would say is insofar as one is acting on or enacting a hard deterministic orientation, then that expression is attached to hopelessness, we might say. But I don't think it's something that just defines a person all the time in every way or that makes up that person's character, even if it's something that can habitually be practiced and then reinforced in a person's life over the duration of that person's lifespan. That's what I would, that would be my speculative take on this. Yeah. I mean, I think my position is partially overlapping with yours, but probably distinct in a certain way. And it'd be something like, this is kind of a Kantian take, that it's not possible to be a hard determinist. It's not practically possible to be a hard determinist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because so, you got to wake yourself up in the morning. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you, you can't think of yourself as a practical actor if you're a hard determinist. You can't consider yeah. reasons because you don't think reasons have any motivational or causal force. You think that um, it, whatever causal force reasons have, they're reducible to uh, whatever, you know, whatever you believe the fundamental physics are, right? The fundamental constituents yeah, of physics right. are. So in, in the sort of scientific hard determinist sense. So, so does that mean that, 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 that hard determinism is like a post hoc rationality? I mean, I, I think that it probably, I mean, it probably often is, but I don't think that's necessarily, you don't necessarily have to posit that it's always been the case. It's more just like, I would speculate that the disunity that comes from being practically unable to be a hard determinist or to incorporate hard determinism into your practical reasoning, that mm. creates disunity in the person and that disunity in the person is what causes the lower life satisfaction. Mm. Ooh, I like that. That would mm. be my take on it. But you know what I'm curious about, dude, is whether mm. or not, so we're, we're talking mostly about a scientistic kind of 20th century, 21st century uh, American kind of determinism, like a Sam Harris. I don't know if he's actually a determinist or not, but like you think of, that's the kind of person you think of when you think of this kind of hard determinism, like a Richard Dawkins. Who's the non-overlapping magisteria guy? What's his name again? Oh, Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah, like that guy. Yeah, although he, he because of the non-overlapping magisteria, right, he wants to allow some room for other stuff, even if ultimately the non-overlapping magisteria thing is meant to denigrate. I don't know that it was for gold. Oh, see, I thought um, it was. Okay. I thought I'd I thought I'd heard him say some Okay. But yeah, let's yeah, let's just think of like a caricatured version of some sort of like evolutionary scientist who doesn't believe in free will whatsoever. It's all just chemical flows or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah, so I would think that what we're talking about fits with that kind of person. What I'm, those kind of persons come from a post-Christian environment, right? And so I'm yes. thinking they're incorporating their version of determinism, hard determinism, into a linear view of time that follows from like a post-Christian kind of thing, right? What yes. about cyclical views of time that are also determinist? Not in the scientific sense, scientific sense, but like 
I don't know, Hinduism. Like if there are Hindu determinists out there, maybe they don't have the lower life satisfaction um, Mm. and the higher rates of depression and anxiety because a cyclical view of time provides you some meaning and from some understanding of yourself as a practical reasoner, but also within a context of um, like, you know, the cyclical view of time, which I guess in some sense allows you to be an actor within the story where a linear view Mm. of time doesn't allow you. I don't know. There might be something there uh, to think about in terms of whether or not a cyclical kind of determinism versus a linear one allows more room for you to be an actor and sort of find your well, life meaningful and stuff like that. Well, maybe because the cyclical time, the c- cyclical conception, like let's say the cycles of like the yugas in Indian philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that is um, perpetually circling back and circling back and circling back. So there's kind of a hopefulness because you can always look forward to the next phase. Whereas a linear hard determinist, it's not going anywhere. It's just kind of like a blind timeline, right? But there's not an end point. There's not like a heaven or a salvation or a next thing that we can look forward to. And so it doesn't it doesn't allow for any responsibility or ethical... Um, concern in the moment, whereas the cycle of the yugas does because there's a karmic cycle that's attached to this, right? There's not that you're doing things necessarily for reward and punishment, but there's also a recognition that there's a logic to this, whereas the hard determinist is like, no, it's meaningless. There's essentially a non-logical, non-rational drive to reality, quote unquote. So I think maybe that's the difference. Yeah. And so I think a cyclical view of time, like like in the Hindu sphere, there's problems with that ethically, I think as well. Um, I wouldn't subscribe to uh, something like that personally but i think it probably does provide much more room for finding meaningful mm. for finding your practical activity in life meaningful because you're playing some predetermined role that makes sense to you and that has value right. in your thinking about what's you know your metaphysical foundations of value whatever those are right whereas yeah. the kind of scientific linear view it's just going to end with you dying and that's it and there's no theory <laughs> of value or anything that usually goes along with that right so really it's just going to be something like pleasure is the only good or whatever that because it's what matters to me right nothing is objectively valuable at all and then i'm gonna die and it's over and that's it so nothing really sustains so at the very least the cyclical use resolves that part of it right so yeah i would be i wouldn't be surprised if this if like hindu determinists if there are if they would use, use that language would not have the same correlation interesting okay let's talk about some of these other positive correlations yeah, so, I mean, this one's not super interesting, I don't think, but maybe you have something about this. So ethical consequentialism, um, realism, which I think just means metaphysical realism, and physicalism and correspondence theories of truth are associated with numerical interest, which I can't remember how they define numerical interest. Was it just, you remember if it was just like, was it just competency with uh, quantitative reasoning or actual like preference for doing that in some way? The word interest makes me think it was more of a preference. Yeah, I thought it was preferential, but also that there's some sort of like um, like a dispositional alignment with that form of thinking, you know, that, uh, yeah. that thinking in, in quantitative terms. Yeah. Um, Which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, consequentialism yeah. and physicalism especially as being kind of following from that sort of interest. Yeah, consequentialism is associated oftentimes with utilitarianism too, right? Utilitarian yeah. calculus, which is a sort of, you know, um, quantitative measure of, of ethical satisfaction. Correspondence theories of truth make sense because 1 plus 1 equals 2. X is correlated with Y. It's essentially a sort of quantitative relationship, right? This is equal to that. Um, 
is kind of a already a, a type of quantitative relation in a way. So that makes sense. Not as not as interesting to me, but yeah, okay, I'm kind of like, yeah. okay, I see it, I see it. Okay, here, here's what I, I want to speculate And again, about, here's I, the I thing know. I keep thinking. I, I keep thinking, can we reverse engineer this in a broader sense? Like, let's take it outside mm-hmm. the context of just philosophers. Can we just say for the average populace? So does this mean if you are quantitatively inclined, could you then see, like, oh shit, am I a consequentialist? Like, am I more of a physicalist? Do I buy into more correspondence theories of truth? You know, I do wonder, and then this makes me think that with the prevalence at the moment of people kind of having discussions about um, the realism of science, like believe science types of narratives, which yeah. which is oftentimes that like, oh, there's a world out there, it's reality, stop denying reality. It's essentially a type of correspondent epistemology that they're offering, right? And this also fits with the quantitative approach that is part and parcel of those. Like, let's just trust the data. We have the numbers. And so it's interesting that that this has become a large sociopolitical issue as well. And so I wonder if it kind of – is there a consequentialism as well that's tied to this, right? That that when people start thinking in these terms, trust science, believe science, is there also like an implicit utilitarianism that corresponds to this? Like, do these all bundle together? I, I wonder. Oh, you know right? they do, dude. You know, you know the thesis: empiricism, <laughs> utilitarianism, capitalism. It's the yeah. unholy trinity. But no, I, I will say from anecdotal experience that um, not that this necessarily means anything. It's a small sample, but the the STEM guys in my classes are almost always immediately uh, interested in, in utilitarianism, uh, and that's just <laughs> and that's just obvious because it like it grabs. Yeah. It's a it's a quantitative way of approaching the moral problem, and it also I think. Um, shows itself in the fact that and this is true even amongst I think professional philosophers, even some of the most renowned professional philosophers, those who are consequential to utilitarians often, not always, but often don't even object to other theories. They just can't understand them. They just yes. they just they're bewildered that anybody could think about morality in any way other than than yes. utilitarianism. Thank and you for I, saying that because I was thinking the same thing, but I was going to say it in relation to correspondence theories of truth. Yeah, same thing that, happens there. Like, how could it be yes, anything other than this? Yeah, That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And people in the STEM world, which – and here's the thing, and I, and I don't mean this to shit on people in the STEM world, but I think it, let's open it up. The the logic of STEM, the lo- logic of science, technology, uh, mathematics, et cetera, et cetera, uh, engineering, math, uh, that those things are becoming a commonsensical form of rationality in the world, right, under late neoliberalism. Yeah. And I don't think that's because they're all arbitrary. Yeah, that's right. And so there's something interesting about the the public discourses uh, about everything from climate change to gender and things like that. They're playing out in this field of quantitative rationality that is tied to correspondence discussions, consequentialist metrics, etc. And I find that really fascinating. Right. So, yeah, they're. Yeah. They're reductive and they're deflationary, and that makes them manageable underneath uh, regimes of control. 
right? Yeah. And that doesn't have yeah, to yeah. exist in the form of capitalism, but it happens to, and capitalism requires <laughs> that, right? And this so, is and this is why you can't. And this is why when you talk with a STEM person and they're like talking about the humanities, like let's talk about somebody like Jordan Peterson, who uh, I heard a quote where he's like, "I was I was reading all this stuff, and then when I got to Derrida and Lacan, I just thought that they're clearly just playing a game on me, right? Like they're just not making any sense." And I was like, "It's because he simply cannot." Like you were just talking about when you talk with your STEM guy, he cannot. Not that he. Um, will not. He is like incapable of trying to think contradiction, of trying to think, and we can talk about this in a minute too, like non-standard forms of logic, non-classical logic. He can't think yeah. about those things because they just simply cannot fit within the quantitative mind. And that 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 and I'm not saying that to condemn, it's more of like a oh, so there's like a fundamental issue here that we need to be aware of that's even deeper than just like some sort of arbitrary willful decision like I choose not to believe it it's like no it like makes it, you're coming up against the the limits of that person's knowledge system and it just makes the once you come up against it it's like it's like the game operation you touch the border and you just you know like <laughs> uh, it yeah. just makes your whole brain it makes your whole brain like <laughs> like no <laughs> yeah it's very much does not compute yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I, I want to bring up that non-classical logic thing before we get there, just so I can do these in order so I don't skip one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for a minute, I want to see what you think about this one. So believing philosophical zombies are metaphysically possible is associated with conscientiousness. I could not figure out a way to square that <laughs> other than the fact that I'm glad it's true, <laughs> I guess. Um, I don't know what to... What, why would there be a connection between being conscientious and believing philosophical zombies are metaphysically possible? So for the for the listeners, uh, philosophical zombies or P-zombies would just be – David Chalmers came up with this idea. Um, a P-zombie or a philosophical zombie would be a being who is functionally exactly the same as you or me, physically and functionally exactly the same as you and me. It has all the same biological materials, functions in the same way, brain, heart organs, everything works the same way, but has no conscious experience. It has no qualia um, in terms of like uh, seeing colors and having a visual field and having feels, phenomenal feels and stuff like that, pains, pleasures, all that. They function the same way. If you stick them with a sword, they'll say, ouch, and they'll grab for the area and they'll keel over and everything else, right? But they won't actually feel any of the pain that you or I feel because we're conscious experiences, right? So no one's claiming that those are actually real. So, it, but the question is whether or not that's metaphysically possible. Uh, not, not, not even like physically possible, right? Not even saying you could have all the biological stuff and not have the conscious stuff, but metaphysically speaking, um, could it even be possible? Are, are they separable basically in a metaphysical sense is the idea. So I think that's true, but um, why that would in any way affect someone's conscientiousness, I, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, I don't understand this either. Does this just mean like, no, I don't understand the well, relation. Here's the speculation, right? If you yeah. if you deny that philosophical zombies are metaphysically possible, yeah, not necessarily, but probably you're going to be like a Dan Dennett type and think that consciousness is some kind of an illusion or whatever, right? Doesn't okay. even require yeah. an explanation uh, separate from its physical foundations, right? Or its physical identity. Um, does that mean you're going to be less sensitive to people's feelings and therefore be less conscientious because you don't think phenomenal feelings are really anything? 
Like, yeah. is it because you you really are sensitive to your own feelings and to the feelings of others, right? Not feelings in terms of emotions, although that's part of it, but feelings in general, right? Pains, pleasures, uh, emotional feels, uh, sensory feels, whatever. If you're more sensitive to those things, you think they have more of an independent reality and therefore are going to be more conscientious towards others because you are sensitive to their feelings. Okay, let's take this out of the philosophical jargon and let's just say, does this mean then that if you believe that other people have their own inner experience, then you're going to be more empathetic? Is that basically what this is saying? I mean, that's or what compassionate? I'm speculating. That's what I'm speculating. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense. Like, if I just look at everything around me as like a meat puppet, then I'm not going to care <laughs> as much for their inner life, right? Yeah. But if I look at that person... If I look at it, okay, I saw this TikTok video the other day. It was so fucking cute, right? And it's this little <laughs> bulldog who goes down to this dock on a lake every single morning between 9 and 9.30. And it has a friend that is a fish. And the fish shows up like clockwork every single day between 9 and 9.30. And they have different videos where they're like, oh, look, today at 9.10, today it was 9.25, today it was 9.15, today it was 9.17, whatever, right? And then one day, they couldn't take the dog for a walk in the morning, so they took it in the afternoon, and the dog went running down to the dock to go look and see if the fish was there, and the fish wasn't there because the fish was on a different time schedule. So maybe the fish was sad because the fish went in the morning and was like, (laughs) where's my bulldog friend? But then the next day... The next day they went in the morning and the bulldog, like clockwork, and the fish showed up and had their thing. And the dog gets so fucking excited when the fish shows up. It's the weirdest and cutest video. And, of course, they had, like, fucking Pixar Disney music playing in the background that made it even more, like, heartwarming, right? But so the point is is that, like, I can look at this dog and even this fish – and we don't typically think of them as being highly sapient (laughs) creatures um, (laughs) – But at the same time, I can be like, there's clearly some sort of, there, there seems to be something going on. Is there like some sort of intentional experience where they enjoy each other somehow? Like, it's kind of weird, right? So am I then feeling the feels of this dog, even if it's projected in bullshit, you might say. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. We're not talking about like the correspondent reality here, right? We're just talking about the, do I believe in the inner life of a fish and a dog? And is that what allows me to get teary-eyed watching this cute video of this bulldog fish friendship, right? And then to what effect or to what extent does fucking Disney films play in forming this bullshit fucking conscientious relationship in relation to qualia? But you know what I mean? Like there is something interesting going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think I will die on this hill, man. (laughs) <laughs> anthropomorphizing animals, anthropomorphizing animals, you got to do it. I mean, you got to be careful. You got to be careful when you do it because you can you can be a danger to the animals by overdoing it. I'm not checking yourself, right? <laughs> it's, it's incorrect to anthropomorphize in inappropriate ways, right? We have certain yeah. psychological capacities that other animals lack, right? But they do have inner lives. Like I'll die on that hill. Um, they're not the same as ours, and they're certainly not as linguistically and uh, experientially complicated as ours, certainly. So you got to check your anthropomorph- anthropomorphication, right? But you still got to do it. One, because mm-hmm. it's cute as fuck, especially with dogs and other cute animals. Yeah. But also, you got to like prime yourself to be sensitive to their inner lives because they have them. And it can be, yes. I bet it's a lot easier to become sort of removed from 
being sensitive to the inner lives of the animals than it is to the humans because humans are so similar to us, right? I mean, we, we've, we've been able to enslave humans. Like that's a level of dehumanization that's just, I can't even fathom, right? But yeah. we've been mistreating animals forever and still do. So yeah. I, w- I would much rather we make the mistake of over-anthropomorphizing them than no longer being sensitive to their inner lives um, and then basically just disrespecting them, treating them as, as raw materials to be used for our own ends. Mm. I, I appreciate your pragmatism on this where you're kind of <laughs> like, look, it may not be quote unquote right, but fuck it. We should do it anyway. Just g- give I, me I, the I dodo, don't. man. Give me those cute animal videos. <laughs> I'm into it, dude. <laughs> That's my philosophical viewpoint too. <laughs> uh, all right. What's the next positive correlation? Okay. Here's the one you mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm curious about your view on. Yeah. Accepting I love non-classical this one. I love logic. This one. Yeah. Accepting oh, no, no, no. non-classical logic. No, no, no. Lo- you're, you're, you're skipping one. Oh yeah, I, I wanted to skip that one. I didn't really care about that next one. Okay, Unless well here's the reason. Let me let me just read it real quick. So theism yeah. and idealism are associated with having had transformative or self-transcendent experience. This is me though, dude. Remember <laughs> when I remember when I converted? It was because I had a crazy radical, transformative, self-transcendent experience. And then maybe even to this day, I was thinking about it. I actually was like, oh fuck, am I a little bit idealistic because I've had these connections with these transcendent experiences, whether it be in tantric meditation or in tantric practice, or whether it be in the the kind of ruptures that I've had in ecstatic religious experiences. Is that maybe why I do have a little bit of an idealism? And then when I talk with people who maybe are far less idealist and like, that's just idealist, that's just idealist, that's just idealist. And it's like, oh, that's because you've never been touched by the spark of God, you fucking cynic. You know? Wait, so are you using idealism here in the philosophical sense or in the uh, personality trait sense because I think they're using it in the philosophical sense of like uh, in, yeah. of like uh, ideas uh, only exist and not material things like like Berkeley Berkeley but I'm you actually think not like, positive like, okay so like idealism in the the, the only they exist I was using it in more like the way that Marx critiques idealist philosophy where it's uh, kind of an essence that precedes existence or some sort of um some sort of like vision of a utopian future that informs your political practice now, which I think has tinges of philosophical idealism in it, even if it isn't devoid of also a materialist critique. Because I see them as being like dialectically dialectically related. I don't buy the whole you're either a materialist or idealist thing. And even if Marx wants to make that critique and certain materialists want to make that critique, I don't buy that. I I still think that there are structural um, idealist tendencies that are kind of maybe part and parcel of the human reflective linguistic experience but maybe that's because i had a transcendent experience and i'm just always trying to rationalize why i kind of find a home with certain like utopian or um idealist philosophical ideas which then also informs my personal idealism that is hopeful and optimistic right yeah that, that makes sense to me i just just look it up though it is external world idealism so it's like barclayan idealism Oh, okay. Um, no, it's a rejection of uh, material existence. Uh, their only ideas uh, are subjective experiences. The only thing that exists. Do those people exist in the world today? What fuck? Who? What philosophical study was this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, w- would they include Kant in this? I don't know, because Kant thinks that they're you know noumena. There's things in themselves, right? Um, yeah. But he's in some sense an idealist. So I'm not sure how if it's only it can't be only Barclayans because there's like what three of those probably who still exist. 
Yeah, um, and they probably just study Barkley, but they probably don't actually believe it themselves, you know? <laughs> well, this would be somebody who actually marked down themselves as an idealist. But again, they might yeah. do that as a Kantian or as a Hegelian or as, you know, whatever else. It might not be uh, purely Barkleyan. Well, and there's a whole post-Kantian tradition of idealism in like the Hegelian or even deconstructive and phenomenological world, right? So yeah. like would those people – I know this is much more of an analytic study, but would those people be considered idealists, you know? Yeah, they because, did note that yeah. like they're, they're asking people what their view is. And so yeah. other people might – because there's disagreement about what these terms even mean in some cases, people yeah. might mark themselves, themselves Dan as a idealist even though they wouldn't by all accounts, be an idealist. Yeah. Also, well, like, I think the thing that was... Are you a, are you a, physical, are you a physicalist if you're a non-reductive physicalist? I yeah, don't right, know. exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that was most interesting about this positive correlation to me was just the idea of somebody who has had transformative and self-transcendent experiences, multiple ones in my life. It does seem that there is some sort of correlation to... A type of theism, a relationship to a big other, like we were talking about earlier, or maybe some sort of um, some sort of post-Kantian idealist mediational understanding of reality, right? Like even if in my mind I'm always trying to deal, like uh, give like a materialist critique of those idealist tendencies, those things are part and parcel of my life. You know, when I lay my head down on my pillow at night, and I wonder if that's related to the fact that I have had these transformative and self-transcendent experiences, right? And then I'm then I'm trying to then again broaden this out. Like let's not just look at professional philosophers, people that are like hardcore into new age philosophy and things like that, who will give their own attestation to having transformative and self-transcendent experiences. They tend to be some type of theist, right? Or uh, many of them will talk about how all reality is just mind or all reality is just ideas and it's our conscious projection, etc., etc. You see this very commonly. And then you get like the hardcore like physicalists that are like, oh, all that fucking new age woo-woo shit. Well, maybe it's because they haven't had that type of experience. Not that none of them have. Maybe they have had like an ayahuasca trip and they just explain it away in some sort of like non-spiritualist or they've had some sort of like mushroom trip, but they explain it away in a non-spiritualist interpretation. But I do wonder about that. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this is, I mean, the sort of the, where my mind immediately goes is some people have uh, receptors for this stuff and some people don't. Like you clearly have receptors for self-transcendent experiences. I very clearly don't have those right mm. we're very different in that regard and so you might be led to this this interpretation where eh, it's again it's just sort of physiological leading to psychological traits that are determining this thing but really importantly that's not what's happening here it's the experiences mm. that are correlated right not your like underlying psychological traits because the, the the big five factor traits right didn't have the correlations it's the experiences that did so, and this gets to this, the last two. We can kind of address all these together, I think, because they're pretty similar. Accepting non-classical logic is associated with having yeah. a self-transcendent experience, which is really interesting. And this is my favorite one, I think. The last one is non-realism regarding aesthetics and morality is associated with having used psychoactive substances and psychedelic, like psychedelics and marijuana. So again, activities, not psychological traits. So totally contingent activities and experiences hmm. that someone can undergo. Those are the are more correlative of these philosophical views, some of which I agree with and some of yes. which I don't, than the underlying psychological traits, which is really interesting. 
right? Much more and interesting, I think, I think than, the, than the claim that we're just determined psychologically to believe certain things. Yeah, and I think maybe the contingent, the contingency of these experiences, what's so interesting, let's think about, because I think that these last three, the, the, the theism, idealism related to self-transcendent experiences, how you accept non-classical logic if you've had a self-transcendent experience, and then non-realism related uh, regards to aesthetics and morality relating to psychedelic and marijuana use, there's a common denominator with marijuana use, psychedelic experience, having self-transcendent experiences in meditation or just having an ecstatic kind of yeah. um, individual Being experience. Being shocked out of normality, right? That's it. Exactly. And yeah. it's tasting the infinite that 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 exceeds our knowledge regime. And as much as you can try to then justify or rationalize with scientific explanations, you know, like I had an out-of-body experience. Oh, well, that's just because it was sleep paralysis and certain chemicals were released in your brain and da-da-da-da-da. It's like, yeah, but you don't understand the experience that I had. Like the qualitative experience, it doesn't fit with that. And so even if I can try my best to explain away the ecstatic experience as being ecstatic mm-hmm. and ethereal, I can never deny it because it just doesn't seem to fit in the kind of like God of the gaps kind of logic where it's like, oh, well, we're just kind of like cutting away those slivers and explaining it away with um, in physicalist terms. It still creates that contradiction, which then leads to maybe my acceptance of non-classical logic because then I'm like, oh, because there's a fucking contradiction here that I don't want to just brush away to one side or the other. I don't want to just simply be like, oh, everything is idea. It's all in the hands of God or something along those lines. And then simultaneously, I can't just simply be like, oh no, it's all just like rigorously explainable through reductive physicalism. There's something about this living in that contradiction that fits so well with my attraction to someone like Kierkegaard, with my Mm -hmm. attraction to someone like Hegel, with my attraction to Sartre. And they're all kind of standing in that gap, feeling that experience of being pulled on both sides. And it makes total sense. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. For me, I totally get that. Yeah, there's something, you know, they, they mention a lot in the paper and they kind of use in their methodology um, William James on the varieties of religious experience as well as principles of psychology. And they, I think, came down on the on the idea that for James, his like, um, what are the two souls? The, the uh, shit, I can't remember the thought in my head. Um, the sick soul and the, it's like the happy soul or um, I can't remember exactly. In William James? Yeah, in, in, in uh, varieties yeah, yeah, of religious and I, experience. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like the, I remember yeah, what you're talking about, but yeah. Yeah, it's like a famous um, bifurcation that James makes to make the case that some people have like these six souls who are naturally pessimistic and um, kind of more attracted towards meaninglessness and stuff like that. And there's the happy souls that find meaning in, in everything. And that that neither are to be denigrated because there's important roles that both play in that um, to each one is kind of lacking in the in the positive aspects of the other. And it's a great discussion. Mm-hmm. It's chapter six of Variety's Religious Experience where he talks about the sixth soul. It's a really great chapter. We have an episode. We have an episode where we did it, where we yeah, talked sh- about it. Shout out to uh, our good friend, Diana Harold, who uh, loves this stuff, if she's listening. Yes. Um, so yeah, they, they came down to the fact that probably James, th- this does not jive. The analysis here does not jive with with that sort of um, grounded bifurcation, but the sort of peripheral aspects of his discussion of those things does fit very well um, with the stuff just more in tune with like experiences rather than psychological traits being the underlying factor here, which I thought was super interesting because there is a big part of James who's very, I mean, to use the sort of five factor thing here, openness to experience matters a lot to James, not just in the sense of like, 
um, you only really have a meaningful life if you're open to experience whatever, because that's, you know, contingent, depends upon the kind of person you are. But right. the sense of, as an epistemological principle, right, being open to experience, in the sense of don't be so quick to take whatever reductive framework you have and interpret everything according to it, to really have right. a good life and to even just to find truth. This is part of his kind of, you know, pragmatism about about uh, epistemology and truth you have to be open to those contradictions and the out like really out there possibilities and explore them and be willing to even if they sound crazy to to see what they do to you like james was kind of renowned and even kind of denigrated for going to seances and being really interested in ghosts and the paranormal and that sounds crazy today, right? Like, what if one of the one of the leading philosophers and psychologists in the in the country was like going to seances and shit like that? That would be kind of a scandal, right? Um, mm. As much as you know, an academic can cause a scandal like that. Uh, you just <laughs> you, you would never see that, right? Chomsky's not going to show up, you know, in the next um, in the next uh, Conjuring movie or whatever. So, but James would have probably, right? Uh, and that's important, not because I think that we should be interested in the paranormal and shit like that. Most of that's like a money trap, right? Um, but being open to the fact that, you know, you're not going to just automatically reduce every experience to some reductive framework that you have just because it's simple and it's easy. And maybe it fits like, um, some notion of explanatory simplicity you get from a misunderstanding of Occam's Mm. razor or whatever, but instead it's like, actually I'm a very finite creature, Like even science tells me I'm an incredibly finite creature reflection, rational reflection on myself tells me I'm a very finite creature and know basically nothing about the world. And so Mm. I should take that into my experiences and be open to the fact that there are things out there that I don't really understand. And it's actually very arrogant, um, all things considered, to think that we have some explanatory framework which can explain every individual experience we have without remainder. And then we can just, you know, move on from the pursuit of like knowledge about things that are uh, that are beyond the scope of, of uh, our current epistemic limits. I don't know. That's kind of rancy, but I think that part of yeah, James, yeah. even though I'm not a pragmatist, is very, very... I'm very comfortable with that. I like it a lot. Hmm. It's interesting here. I'm, I'm curious, like clearly, so accepting non-classical logic, so they're talking about like paraconsistent logics and things like that. I'd love to talk to someone like Graham Priest and be like, all right, Graham, mm-hmm. what was your psychedelic trip, bro? <laughs> like, like what was the moment that made you be like, oh, that's cool. Liar's paradox. Things exist in contradiction. As a matter of fact, reality is contradiction. Cool. Let's go down that route. Like, I'm really <laughs> curious. I want to know, like, were they raised in a religious environment? Were they raised having, like, were they hippies? Did they, you know, is, is that something that's related? Or was it just kind of, I don't know. Was it something that was like this, through study they had some sort of crazy break encounter with something more than themselves you know or that started they started going down a path of like self-deconstruction or something like that Um, I think a lot of those activities they tend towards the openness to non-classical forms of of logic and uh I wonder if we just have like a generation of fucking Hegelians that are all just like stoners. Like, is that was, the, is that yeah, the idea? I was just thinking that like people trying to read <laughs> Science of Logic couldn't get anything of it. Did some LSD, it made sense, and then they became yeah. interested in paraconsistent logic. Yeah, like that's how. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. That was the funnel. So, yeah. 
<laughs> but here's the interesting thing again, right? This is like the, the, the most interesting part of this paper for me is that you might think this is just, okay, so some people are stuffy and um, conservative, not in the political sense, but in like the personality sense, right? And so they don't want to experiment with drugs and they also don't want to experiment with non-classical logic, right? They want the simple, yeah. straightforward, they want the meat and potatoes shit, right? They don't want to try sushi. Yeah. But again, that's not the case, right? It's not the underlying psychological traits. Those didn't have these correlations. It's the experiences mm. and the activities that did, right? So, I mean, assuming that this is somewhere near truth, and, and I, I, I jive with this idea, is that, you know, maybe having these experiences, even if you are stuffy and conservative naturally, which I am, right? Mm -hmm. um, not about everything, but, uh, but more so than you, certainly, right? You have way more <laughs> of the openness to experience uh, psychological trait than I do. Um, but those experiences really do kind of change you. They, they affect mm. your psychology and your psychology is fungible, right? It's plastic. Um, yes. And so you can become more open to stuff. Not, I'm never going to become like you, no matter how much LSD I do, right? Um, you could read Critique of Pure Reason front to back, right? And study it in the German and you wouldn't become like me, right? Um, mm. Even if you had the categories of the understanding completely uh, down pat. <laughs> um but that's fine, right? You can the, the kind of fungibility and the plasticity um, of of your philosophical views based on your experiences. I think is it's, it's great. I mean, it's it's also hopeful too, right? Because it means yeah. that there's some sense in which you can experiment with things in life, and they can actually affect um, what you think. And that's wonderful because that provides some hope for actually attaining something like the truth. Yeah, I often wonder why I'm attracted to, like, why was it that I got attracted to Sartre? And then why Deleuze, you know? Like, why am I attracted to these types of figures? Why am I attracted to certain types of art? Why am I attracted to certain ways of, of viewing the world as, like, you know, artistic experimentation and creativity? And I'm trying to think, like, there's a sense in which I was kind of always like that. As a child, I was very inquisitive and I wanted mm -hmm. to experience everything. So there's a sense in which you could say, oh, your your psychological makeup pre-existed that and it was some sort of like essence that, that was just what, that just was Austin. And then at the same time, there's also a sense in which you could talk about these experiences, but actually, no, you, you still were, you know, conservative in some ways and then having these these self-transcendent experiences or whatever kind of opened your horizons even broader to the, wor the world of contradiction and difference and deconstruction and, and, and things like that. Um, but I, I, I always wonder, I, I do wonder, like, if it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Like, what brought me to being attracted to the philosophical views that I find most appealing? And, but then, but then you can even go back to the kind of, like, the childhood and you can be like okay so as a child you were always inquisitive and, and wanting to explore everything but that wasn't just something that you were necessarily born with there are probably societal influences and um, context influences that also had some sort of impact on that as well so you had experiences you had experiences from even maybe before you can consciously remember that maybe serve as types of quote unquote self transcendent experiences, right? It's just mm -hmm. it's just not something that's like I consciously went on an ayahuasca retreat type of self transcendent <laughs> experience. But nevertheless, I had some kind of experience of the uh, excessiveness or the beyond or the infinity of of reality, you know, uh, at a, at very young ages. And maybe that's what made me more open to 
contradiction to to having a more inquisitive nature. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm always really curious, and I do often wonder, you know, like, what are the causal influences? Yeah, and what's, what's key there is because it's a contingent experience and not an underlying deterministic psychological trait is it could happen again in the future and change you, yeah. right, in a different direction. Yes. And it, wouldn't, it won't change you into being like a, you know, stuffy like reductivist or whatever, right? Um, I mean, at least I hope not. That would be boring as shit. I couldn't do a <laughs> podcast with you anymore, probably. Um, but it, it could change you in different directions. Um, and, this, and the same for me and anybody else, right? And that's that's yeah. great, I think. That provides a lot, of, a lot more hope than the more deterministic psych, psychological determinism framework that I think a lot of people assume is probably the case. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's much better, I think. Yeah, and it makes me think that yeah, it, I mean, I write about this in my book, in the second half of my book, about what I call micro-psychobiological shifts. And I use some affect theory from Deleuze and stuff like that, but it's the idea that, um, you know, there are these micro, these tiny little breaks and fissures. We could use Deleuzean terms like deterritorializations and re-territorializations, right? There, there are these breaks in the flow of are psychobiological patterns and i think it happens at every fucking instant like i think in i i think that you can't i can't even look at my room right now without having some sort of um micro psychobiological flux that's happening right like i think that's what it that's what it is to exist is being perpetually in a state of managing and dealing with um, that flux, right? Now, of course, you're you're not always experiencing it to the hilt. It's not always like ecstatic out of body experience. Um, so it's it's happening at different degrees of intensity, we might say. But I think that we're we're always kind of in that state of like deconstruction, let's say, for lack of a better term or a better word, is like scrambling and then like recreation. And so the question is, is what is going like is there an anchor that is pulling us in a particular direction of recreation right so when we're being unscrambled what is then when we're being unscrambled what is rescrambling us or what is uh what is what is what is bringing us back together and so in my room right now um obviously there isn't the conditions for radical rupture so even though i'm constantly in that state of like expansion and contraction or deterritorialization and reterritorialization it's not as radically experienced because i'm in like a a habitual, comfort, comfortable, um, everyday kind of environment. But if I were out in the ocean and a huge fucking set came through all of a sudden, it would be far <laughs> more radical, right? And my it, it would create different experiences of fear and anxiety and I'd have to problem solve and um, – you know, uh, maybe I'd see somebody else that got fucking like wiped out like really hard and held under the water for a long time. And then I'm going to have to deal with that. And then maybe I have an experience where I have a positive experience on a wave, a successful experience, and then maybe a bad one where I get drug under and I'm just fucking held under, you know. And so that would be maybe a more radical experience um, that can kind of like come out of nowhere. Or all of a sudden, let's say I'm sitting here and the fucking ceiling caves in on me because they're doing construction upstairs and the fucking roof falls in. That 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 is changing me in very more substantial ways than in the present moment, but I'm always at the edge. I'm always at the precipice, if you will, of experiencing those types of frazzling and then kind of like coming back together, you know? Yeah, those things are always available. And that's a much more hopeful way of looking at it than the deterministic framework, I think. I mean, I think about for yeah. myself that uh, 
but just one example is, you know, because of my personality, um, I am led to enjoy music that has a, a quantifiable mathematical structure and, and sort of linear flow to it that I can, that I can sort of um, conceptualize the form of. Uh, almost like the platonic, I'd, I've, I've mentioned to people before that I sometimes enjoy the platonic ideal of the song more than the song. Uh, and that I don't literally mm. mean that, but there's some sense in which I, I gravitate towards that conception. And that more abstract music was very difficult for me. But then w- one day, maybe a half decade or more years ago, I listened to a Brian Eno record, one of his ambient records, and I got it. It just clicked, even though it didn't have that same mm. it, his, his ambient records have more of a, a sort of um formula or a form to it that you can that you can conceptualize than other ambient music but that was a gateway to, to more experimental and abstract ambient music and that's not a thing yeah. i think you would have expected uh i would have expected to have enjoyed before that and so yeah yeah those kind of experiences um they kind of escape that explanation in terms of you know predetermined frameworks hmm yeah, that, yeah. That also leads you to be more open to different experiences because they could actually change you, right? Rather than thinking, "Oh, this will never have any effect on me," is no need to try it or whatever. I mean, I would argue that they do change you. Like, I, I don't even think it's just a possibility in the sense of yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it does change you. Um, it's just to what extent, in what ways, um, to what degree, that that kind of thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm yeah, a bit yeah. worried about. Uh, all these kids smoking marijuana and being moral non-realists. That's a troubling, troubling outcome. All the kids, they're, all... they're listening to, <laughs> to doom metal, smoking dope and talking about how there are no objective moral facts. What is with these kids these days? <laughs> yeah, damn fucking Zoomers. <laughs> well, I say we go ahead and wrap up the main segment there. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I mean, if I was to sum it up, I would just say, kids, don't read Dan Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, because as we've just proven, you'll become a dick because you won't be conscientious, (laughs) because you don't believe in philosophical zombies. You'll be a dick and you'll be depressed. So don't do it. And you won't be able to enjoy dog and cat videos as much. (laughs) So I saw this great, I saw this great dog and cat video. This is the last thing I'll say. And it was, um. It was like a dog voice going like, um, oh my God, this person feeds me and waters me and pets me and nurtures me. They must be God. And then it was a cat voice that cut, cut and it was like, oh my God, this person feeds me and waters me and pets me and nurtures must be me. my slave. I'm, I must be God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on to the final segment. All right, so before we get out of here, we got to do the Sticky Leaves segment of the podcast. And for those who are unaware, the Sticky Leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's providing us some avenue towards meaning in life, even if it's potentially the case that the world is meaningless. Not guaranteed, but you know, it's an open possibility. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week slash month? Yeah. So um, you know, I love I love going to see movies in the movie theater and things in oh Sydney. Oh my god! Great. I miss it so much, dude. I know. I know. I I actually am at a point in my life where I I I actually despise watching things on Netflix and at home now. <laughs> um, 
I, I can't even, even if it's like a good movie, I, I can barely get through it. You know, it's like a struggle. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just some sort of resistance to the digital and it's like some sort of like the analog side of me is like, ah, I need to be in a seat with humans on a project with a projector. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but um, anyway, I went and I saw Nomadland uh, a couple mm. weeks ago. And I I am not a fan of the Academy Awards. Like, I don't really give it much merit in terms of actually measuring the quality of cinema, right? Like, like not that there's no value in using it as a barometer, but it's it shouldn't be taken seriously. And this is a, a thing that I've had to learn over the past, you know— 10, 15 years, because when I was younger, I was like, oh my god, it's it's the measure of what is the best of the year. It's not. It's just an industry award ceremony. And mm-hmm. the sooner we come to realize that, the I actually think the better then we can understand what the award ceremony is. And it can allow us to cut through a lot of the bullshit. But um, I don't think that Nomadland is the best film that I've ever seen. And it might not even be the best film of the category that was, that was offered. It's certainly not the best film of the year from my perspective. I think another round which did win best um, like foreign film, but um, another round I think is a better film, maybe my favorite film that I saw. But um, oh, pl- I, when you're when you're done talking about Nomadland, please talk about another round because I haven't heard your your spiel about it yet, and I was so excited for you to see it. Yeah, okay, we'll talk. Okay, perfect. That could be a sticky leave too. Um, but I did <laughs> want to talk about Nomadland just because it's kind of you know in the popular consciousness a little bit more, and I just really want to mm-hmm. encourage people to see it. And you know there. We talked about it on the Wisecrack Show Me the Meaning podcast, and, and Michael Burns mentioned that, you know, when he first saw it, he really liked it. And then after reading a lot of, like, the backlash against it because of, you know, some some political critiques about the film. And I don't, I'm, I'm trying not to be too spoilery here, too, because I, I think people should see it. But how there were some lefty critiques about the film. And then Michael said that it kind of affected his interpretation of the film. He was like, oh, man, am I missing something? Like, did I enjoy this film? But... But these like, you know, these these people who are woke are telling me that it's a bad film. Maybe I should listen to him. And then he watched it again. He's like, no, no, I like this film. It's a good film. <laughs> totally totally and, agree uh, with that, That, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really excellent movie. And in a couple ways. One, I mean, the acting is, is phenomenal. Two, one of the things I love about it is the story is very simple. And a lot mm-hmm. of times the films that we're given are super dramatic. Like it's like the moment of somebody's life that, I mean, and this is a very intense moment in somebody's life that we're watching, but it's handled with subtlety that isn't like, that isn't overblown. And it makes you realize that even something as simple as a car breaking down can be catastrophic in a person's life. Or uh, somebody learning how to fix a flat tire can be an ecstatic, self-transcendent experience, right? Things like that, I think, were so amazing and how this film really just grounded us. It's one of the most human films I've seen in a very long time is kind of what I'm getting at here. And I I thought that it had a lot to say about life post-GFC, post-financial collapse in 2008. I thought it had a lot to say about um, older populations, people who are kind of left behind, uh, people who are on the margins in... Um, in an economic, in, in a central economic empire, but who are still kind of peripheral entities themselves. They're kind of nomads, right? Which is nomad land. And then I think more than anything, what I loved about the film is it talked about just in philosophical terms, the experience of being homeless. 
not homeless in the sense of like the social um social economic condition of being homeless but more about like the spiritual philosophical whatever you want to call it yeah, the hegelian idea. sense right yeah the social yeah, world is uh, not a home exactly and then what does it mean to find home in that homelessness you know and i just thought it was a beautiful film it was very i thought very kind of inspired by terrence malick in terms of it's yeah, kind of like totally poetic similar. yeah poetic weaving together also poetry factors heavily in the film because she was a poetry tutor right so um there's something beautiful about that in there as well but also the cinematography just from a formal perspective is very poetic but it was far less transcendent than, and maybe inaccessible even, than Malick's films. It was far more grounded and human, again. And mm. um, I also think there's something really important about slow cinema, the pace of the film. You know, we live in an attention deficit society, and I think that's fine. Like, I like TikTok as much as the next person, and that's great to get those snappy, bite-sized bits of uh, media entertainment. But I also think that sometimes it's wonderful to just have a meditative experience and 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 I don't think that meditation always has to come with you in a lotus position, right? It can also come with you being held in the hands of a capable artist collective that is is taking you into a person's life. And sometimes I think that can be even more of a of a of a transcendent experience. And I think I had a sort of like ecstatic experience watching that film. And so I I personally love it for all the reasons that I'm saying. And I think it's a very good film. Um, I'm always, you know, you can be a prisoner of the moment, and I don't know if it's an excellent film or an amazing film, but I'm tempted to say it is. But I don't know if it just, it had such an impact on me and it's stuck with me, and maybe that's why I think it was excellent. But it's definitely, it's worthwhile to watch. And if you can see it in a cinema, do. If you can't, then at least, like, set up your home your home cinema the without distractions turn off your phone and just and just engage in the kind of poetic meditative experience of it and i think there's a lot there to chew on without just saying like what is this film telling me but just sit with it and just hold it and let it kind of wash over you more like experiencing poetry rather than trying to just get information but yeah so i, I really enjoyed that but what do you think man yeah, dude, I'm so glad you said all that because I, I watched the film at home by myself and had to like deal with the dishes and the dog and keep pausing it and all this kind of stuff and, you know, pause it mm -hmm. to look at text or even just, you know, check the phone every once in a while. I, I, I never like look at my phone when I'm watching a, a movie I really want to watch, but I'll have to like respond to a text really quick or whatever, right? And that's just, I kept thinking as I'm watching this, oh my God, this movie is beautiful. I wish I was watching this in a movie theater, not mm. focusing on anything else. I kept thinking that over and over again. It's such a bummer mm. that this just was not an available option uh, here in the States. So I was bummed about that, but I still really, really enjoyed and admired the film for all the reasons you stated. And I haven't read all the lefty critiques because it, you know, it came out in this, um, or I, I watched it a few weeks ago and just didn't have time to look at all that stuff, right? But it does strike me that if the critiques were centered on this idea of like romanticizing um, life of exploited people or whatever, which is that, is that the basic idea of the, of the lefty critiques? Partly that um, also a little bit of like, you know, racist critiques that uh, this van community in actual life can be quite racist and mm. um, 
And then also um, the idea that Walmart ends up looking like a hero because, you know, it uh, it just provides her with seasonal work whenever she needs. And so there's no critique of like the miserable factory conditions and stuff like that. I, so I that didn't get that last part at all. It didn't seem to me at all like me like either cast as a hero. <laughs> that seems very much the opposite. But, you know, I do understand that like, OK, if you have this issue where you have these these people who are clearly exploited and who are clearly victims of social oppression in different ways, right? Um, not, you know, more so than other people or whatever. Not that they're um, sort of in no way sort of morally tainted for whatever reason, right? Uh, but there, there's that fact, right? That, that social fact. But then also they're human beings with dignity. And you want to focus on that aspect. I feel like the film could not have done a better job of showing the quiet dignity of and humanness of people while also really in my mind completely laying bare i mean not like um not necessarily in the sense of like foregrounding it in the film but it seems to me totally apparent that the people here are exploited and are victims of uh oppression in a capitalist society like that both those factors seem completely apparent to me and i thought it was brilliant for being able to to sort of balance that because that's difficult to do right it can come off as preachy in one aspect on the worst side or like it has no ability to actually speak to the social issues at all and just focusing on individual dignity in a way that's like in some sense obscurantist right and unhelpful and not even i think um to be admired some lots of films do that right i think it balanced that act pretty brilliantly i mean yeah. i'm certainly open to criticisms otherwise i haven't read a lot of stuff and i've just watched them be one time but it, on one watching at least it seemed to to me both those factors were um, readily apparent hmm. yeah yeah i mean all this to say i think people should check it out really interesting stuff there also there's some great like allusions to uh, westerns and some mm. great callbacks. Like I said, I already mentioned the Malik callback, but some really great callbacks to like the Searchers and some other things. And and wait, I think there's wait, something did, really interesting. Did you did you call No Bad Men a revisionist western? Yeah, that's your thing, right? <laughs> it, it, yeah, a hundred percent, man. It is a, it is a fucking revisionist western. They even talk about her at one point as being like a pioneer. Like, uh, mm. I think the sister says this in one conversation where she's like, "Oh, she's just like the pioneers of this country," and I'm like, "Oh, yes." <laughs> but it's but it's amazing because it's told through the story of a woman, right? A woman who is yeah. entirely alone, who has lost her husband and her way of life and her support group and everything. And she becomes a quote-unquote pioneer. And what is a pioneer doing? They're exploring the commons, the common land, nature, right? And she doesn't accept the privatized acts of enclosure, of suburbanized or urbanized life. And there's a scene that is very important where she goes to visit her sister and her brother-in-law and they're all sitting around talking about real speculative real estate prices and oh, shit yeah. like that. And I actually felt sick when that scene came up because you were just <laughs> brought into her freedom of connecting with the commons, let's say. And then all of a sudden she comes back to this discussion that is just saturated with privatized logic, a privatized discourse and accumulation of resources and wealth based on this act of enclosure of the commons, whereas she's learning to then connect with the commons again. So there's this like beautiful socioeconomic logic as well. And 
I don't know. I, I, I think it's a really fascinating film that explores a lot of those themes that are also part and parcel of the Western, right? Like, mm-hmm. like the searchers is all, or, or even, um, Shane is, is there about like these fucking cattle barons that are coming in and closing off the land and that land shouldn't be for the private interests of wealthy corporate, uh, of wealthy corporate, um, big wigs, but that rather it should be there. That's open for horses to roam and for cattle to graze and, you know, for us to, um, equally partake on. So there's this lovely kind of retelling of, um, a sort of pioneering spirit, but told also from from a feminist perspective, or maybe not, I don't want to say feminist, although I think it is, but it's a feminine perspective, which I think is really also quite powerful as well. Um, yeah, because she also doesn't have children, right? So there's something about bounty and reproduction and social reproduction that could be explored. I just think it's a really, a really rich film and. Yeah, there's so much to explore that uh, it kind of gets me excited. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we don't yeah. have time, and we don't have time to keep talking about it, but another round is also brilliant, so go see fucking another round. But sorry. 30-second 30, 30 review. 30-second review of another yeah. round. Uh, uh, I mean, first of all, anything Mads Mikkelsen <laughs> does is fucking gold. When he works with Thomas Vinterberg, it's fucking gold. He, Mads Mikkelsen is my favorite actor in the world. He has been since I saw the film The Hunt, the Hunt which yeah. just oh. is one of my favorite films. It, I've never I been can't more watch anxious it in a film. <laughs> yes, same. Liter- literally, same. I've never been more anxious in a film in my entire life, and I feel like if I watched it again, it would actually ruin... I watched it a few times, and I feel like if I watched it again, it would actually ruin the experience, but I don't know. It's been a few years now, but... Uh, yes, go see the Vinterberg, Mads Mikkelsen film, The Hunt. So anything they do together, I'm like, I'm here for. So if they want to team up together. I think the, the amazing thing about Another Round is the kind of superficial idea is that, oh, it's about these dudes that are in midlife crises and they decide to just be constantly like drunk all the time and it could be like silly. But there is such a fucking... Again, it's the one of the most human films I've ever seen. It's just... Oh, yeah. You don't... You don't have to tell a story by using these like vaunted principles and ideas, right? Just tell stories about humans experiencing heartache and loss and trying to to recapture youth and joy and pleasure. And then in that space of contradiction, and that's why this is a very Kierkegaardian film, you find you find pain and beauty and love and mess and tragedy and oh my god and it enjoy like is the ending is it is it not one of the most exuberant endings like most <laughs> joyful endings like uh. yeah it is and it's only joyful because of the negative right of the tragedy yes yeah it's 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 like it is a beautiful and that's the other thing is the end joyful or is it also tragic well and the answer is yes yeah, it, yeah it is. exactly the answer is yes <laughs> It's, o- is, it's yes. only so joyful and uplifting, not just like because the, the negative, right? The tragedy makes space for the joy as a contrast. No, it's constitutive of it in, in like yeah. a, a crazy, yes. impenetrable way. Yes. Yeah, and it's, I, it's and just, it's I, such and a know, gorgeous And I love film. it because only a Danish person or a European sensibility <laughs> could make that film. You can't make that film in the United States. And the, the United States doesn't understand that dialectic of No, of not pain. at all. It, it, would, it would be Ed Helms no. and... Um, and Seth Rogen and yeah. stuff, and it would just be a, a stoner comedy. But they just get drunk and like sleep with their cousin, and then yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, and it would have some bullshit like aspirational logic, like they're 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 halted in their career, like they haven't been promoted, so they're they're stuck in like uh, the middle rung of middle management or something like that. Yeah, but then It'd be through this experience, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Seth Rogen would finally become an adult <laughs> through this experience. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he'd finally be an adult, which means that he can get a home loan and become a better <laughs> cog in the fucking. Capital My God, studio. it would be the worst movie ever. The remake, the American <laughs> remake of Another Round, is going to be the worst movie ever. <laughs> oh fucking shoot me, please don't do it. <laughs> But yes, go see another round. It's amazing too. Um, as a matter of fact, it'd actually be a really interesting doubleheader to watch Nomadland and another round on back to back nights. Really interesting. So, okay, that's my sticky leaves. I'm done. Let's wrap up the episode. Thank you so much for uh, staying with us. Um, we're back now, hopefully, to some uh, regular regular releasing of some uh, episodes and things like that. Um, like Troy said at the beginning, we've got a poll that's going to be coming out where you can vote on the next patron chosen topic. And so that is actually up and live now by the time this episode has been released. So go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to being able to vote in that as well as get access to the discord and other bonus content. And I think that's pretty much everything I got to say, unless there's anything else you can think of that I've left out. Just one thing I can think of, dude. What's that? It's been a while, but you know how it is. Das Vidania Amerikanski. Yeah.